So when I look at things, I don't just look at what's out there because everything is out there. I try to figure out what's going to be useful, um, useful to me or useful to lots of other people, you know, customers, friends, you know, if it's, um, a, you know, just something, you know, that kind of thing. I'm looking for who's it going to be useful to and why. I want to be able to justify that. everybody. Welcome to another Haas Talks Boss. I am the head of open source strategy at Percona, or the Haas for short, Matt Yakovit. And today we are here from Matt Farina uh, from SUSE. How are you doing today, Matt? Hi, thanks for having me, Matt. Ah, see, we have two Matts today. Today is the, the double Matt show, which is, which is always fun and exciting. Um, so Matt, you have been in the uh, open source space for years and years uh, coming out of college. Uh, you started to get involved fairly early on and uh, have continued your open source journey. And so we'd love to hear a little bit about you and how you came to the open source community and some of the cool things you've done over the years. Sure. So I started using open source a long time ago, um, back in the 90s. I was a consumer of open source. I had my first Linux on um, DVD or CD back then that I would install. And I was using open source back then. But after uh, college, and I went to college to get an electrical engineering degree because I wanted to know how software ran on chips. I, oh. That just fascinated me. That's an how, unusual you know, start, right? Because people don't necessarily start with electrical engineering uh, for a software career. Well, I, I started actually writing software uh, back in elementary school. And so by that point of writing software for all those years, I, I really had this anchoring. What was going on underneath? What was happening in the hardware? How did it work? And so I came out of college with an electrical engineering degree, and I ended up going to work at General Dynamics doing um, military you know, systems. And I was doing electrical engineering work. I worked in diagnostics and testability engineering, which is how to basically figure out something failed so it can be easily repaired. Um, that, that's where I ended up. And I ended up working first on some of the uh, older vehicles and diagnosing things, which was one of the best and most educational experiences of my life. And that's because I had to get outside of my own head. Uh, about half of that job had me paired with um, an end user, a guy who actually had to fix stuff and deal with vehicles. And I just had to sit there with him and go through stuff, take notes, correct things, learn from this guy who had all this knowledge. And I really grew to respect who the end users were and their vantage point. And I think that's something that's carried with me throughout everything because I had to learn to get out of my own head and get out of my way and listen to, to others. Okay. Um, and that's but, an, that, yeah. that's an interesting start, and not not to interrupt, but uh, my career started at uh, uh, you know early on in the database space, and I remember being at Penske Logistics, and one of the activities that they did was have you do ride-alongs in trucks to see how you know the truck drivers would use your logistics stuff as well. So it, a very similar uh, story in the early days. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's really valuable to know what people are doing with your stuff because um that that just teaches you so much about that environment and if you're just making it up as you go it can quite often be different from what somebody's really doing with it. Yeah, definitely. So, from that you 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 kind of dove into 
um, a, a bit of a different role where you started to yeah. do more development software. Yeah. So I, I was working on hardware stuff and I ended up working in new hardware stuff. And in the military design cycle, it takes years to get something to market. Um, and I am entirely impatient and I learned software, save, compile, run. It was beautiful. It was fast. You can ship like that, right? Yeah, it was yeah. great. I, I couldn't handle not shipping quickly. So I first went to a software group in there, but um, then I ended up switching to, I, during that time, I started doing open source. Um, I had a friend who was doing websites. He needed a platform to do. First, we started off with some small libraries. Um, and that was right around the time WordPress and Drupal were becoming big. And we ended up on Drupal because it offered more flexibility. And at first, I was consuming Drupal. And then I got into uh, large-scale contributions, new modules, new add-ons to Drupal, and then Drupal itself I ended up working on. And that was really my big leap into uh, contributing at scale. Before that, it was little things here and there I'd contribute. That's really when I invested in one thing and started to contribute. And that community taught me a lot about what it meant to be a good contributor, right? Uh, code, uh, reviews. Reviews is a huge thing. Just writing code and throwing it at somebody and expecting they're just going to pick it up, that doesn't work. You know, giving good reviews to others and helping them grow in that, that's useful. Getting up and speaking and teaching others how to do things, which makes them better contributors. That community taught me so much about not just writing code, but everything involved in contributing and maintaining that software. And, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about contributions, uh, th there's often a misconception around contributions that it's code only. And there's so much else. You mentioned speaking, you mentioned mentoring, you mentioned, you know, reviews and doing different activities that are so valuable to projects that a lot of people minimize, but they're really, really important. Yeah, they're, they're very valuable. And even if you're not a maintainer, you know, you can jump in and you can give code review feedback if you know little things that they expect and what they like. And that makes, uh, you know, a change request, pull request, patch, you know, whatever you're working on better when a maintainer does get around to it because it's been well formed for them. That feedback that they just have to give out all the time, they don't have to because somebody else has helped that. And that helps you get further along in your contribution life and all of this stuff. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it's so important for people to, to realize that because it's, it's often hard for people to get started even, and they don't know where to begin with an open source project because sometimes they're not confident in their coding skills. They're not confident in, you know, their technical skills, uh, but they might have used the product. They might have some insight, uh, that is valuable to share, but they just don't know how to go about doing it. And I'll say reviewing um, pull requests and then trying to figure out why they did what they did or why did it work that way or what was going on and then going out and reading up more about it, right? So one of the things that I got involved in at that point was web performance because it's a web thing, right? Mm -hmm. How do you make this perform? Why was web import performance important? And then what kinds of things are you doing and how does that work? Right. I ended up remember at one point I learned how, you know, about TCP round trips and how many round trips and how it scaled up and size compared to that and looking at performance from that point. And learning all of that was trying to figure out why somebody else's patch worked the way it did, why they were doing what they were doing and how it mattered. 
and trying to dig into those harder things and then go outside and research the space um, is one of the ways I've learned so much in my career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's a, that's a great point, you know, being able to review the code, what people are doing, how they're thinking um, it, it provides you with a guidebook or a roadmap uh, for your own skill set and your own growth. Yeah. Um, it's a very good well, point. From there, um, I decided I wanted to do the open source stuff full time and there were Drupal agencies. So I went to my first agency, then a second agency, uh, doing Drupal consulting, Drupal development, Drupal work. Um, the second one I stayed at the, for about two years was Palantir.net. Not the Palantir everybody thinks of. This is a Chicago based consulting company, Palantir.net. Um, and that's actually where I met Matt Butcher, who, uh, he and I have collaborated on numerous things now. Another Matt. Um, you See, know, we've l- lesson here is you're in a good spot if your name is Matt and in the open source. <laughs> well, he and I have worked on numerous, we've worked at two companies. We've worked on numerous open source projects together and we've co-authored three books together. And so that Excellent. was the start of a, of a nice, you know, partnership between people in different places over time. But I, I worked there for a while doing Drupal stuff. And then, um, Somebody else who I'd met from the Drupal and, and just the web development space pulled me into Hewlett Packard. And this was before HPE and or Hewlett Packard Enterprise and HP Inc. had separated the business and split apart. And it was one gigantic company to go work in HP Cloud. And I started there just doing web stuff, the same Drupal stuff I had been doing before. But my desire to tinker and work on things... Um, led me to do other things over there, uh, working on a marketplace, uh, which is another web thing, but it had a bunch of automations in the back, uh, working on, um, we ended up doing cloud foundry based stuff. That was really exciting. I, that's, that was actually my first foray into containers. Um, and before cool. Docker and Kubernetes and every, anything, you had stuff like cloud foundry, which was built on LXC containers at the time and based on kind of like Heroku in a box and, doing stuff in that space and learning how all that stuff worked even before this is probably 2012 before you had docker and kubernetes and all these other engines you still had container orchestration through systems like cloud foundry just had a pass in the front of it um and eventually uh, i landed and you know every so often things would change i would do something else i ended up after a little while working doing just new uh, research and development with Brian Aker, who you know, uh, yeah. who was a fellow at the time, and we were doing R and D work inside of HP. Yeah, yeah. Brian Aker used to work at MySQL AB. Um, he had developed quite a bit of the technology that made it into um, the core MySQL engines. Uh, built a few engines on the side. Um, for those of you who don't remember, he also uh, did a, a, a slimmed down version of MySQL uh, called Drizzle. Uh, and was very active in the OpenStack space for quite some time. Um, so that, that, that's, that's, that's great that, that kind of HP, you know, growth from just a web developer to someone who is starting to think about what the future is and try and figure out how to take, um, where we are today and, and move us forward. Um, yeah. and, uh, that's, that, that, that's a good transition. Um, I like how you phrased it as tinkering. Because a lot of people in the open source space start there. It, the tinkering is what really motivates them. It's how does this work? How do I how do I break it apart and can I optimize it? Uh, it's almost like the 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 old days of um, you know 
people, you know, souping up their cars, tuning them up. Or, um, you know, when I was uh, in college, uh, I used to build all my own machines and try and get the most performance out of them. Uh, it's that sort of mentality that often you find really drives a lot of open source uh, contributors and uh, community members. Well, it, it, you brought up a bunch of interesting things. So along the way, I actually did open sack stuff. That was one of the things that I failed to to talk about. We did some really neat um, R and D and some some stuff around OpenStack at the time. So it was it had moved beyond web development at that point into some of the OpenStacky bits. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you're right. I I'm an engineer at heart. I like to take things apart. Mm-hmm. When I was 16 and I first got into cars, I worked on them myself. In fact, I still uh-huh. work on my own cars today. And you're, I, I agree with you on computers because uh, there's a laptop out there called a framework laptop. And it's one that is entirely and completely repairable. You can literally take it apart. They send you a screwdriver in order to let you do that, right? And, and I got one early on because I like the ability to work on my own stuff. And I've built my own computers over time. And so that tinker, take it apart, refactor it, toy with things is definitely part of who I am to understand how things work and what I can do with it. Yeah. And you see that with the software side, especially on the open source space where products end up being derivatives of other products and other ideas so often. And it's a really great ecosystem to be able to learn from one another and see what others have done and if they've done it better to be able to adopt and adapt your you know software and kind of move uh into a new piece of uh software something brand new that that didn't exist before but might have um you know some points back to um previous products or projects that uh had success and you know as we get to into the container space i think that's a great segue because that's kind of what you saw uh we were using staccato was our cloud foundry distribution that i was using at the time and uh it came out and they replaced lxc with docker when docker came out yeah and that was exciting to see a different engine under the hood being used there and then when docker came out then you saw kubernetes come out and be on top of docker right and mm-hmm. because now you got the orchestration and now you know, uh, Cloud Foundry had had, they had their DEAs, which was an orchestration system of its own, sort of like a Kubernetes competitor, but you couldn't use it on its own. And you just saw this, this kind of thing. And now with Kubernetes, you had container orchestration on Docker, but without the paths in the front. And uh, early on, we saw it and Brian saw it and others that Kubernetes was going to be the big thing kind of the Linux of the container orchestration space or the cluster or data center operating system space. If you see a bunch of machines as one system you schedule across. And uh, we saw this. And so we invested heavily in it. And that's when I started doing upstream work in the Kubernetes community. I got involved in SIG apps, which dealt with uh, actually co-founded SIG apps, which dealt with running workloads on Kubernetes. And how do you make that experience better? Because early Kubernetes didn't have the workloads APIs. There was no deployments or stateful sets or jobs or any of that. You worked with some lower level things and had to do it yourself. And there weren't a lot of tools you could use around the space initially. There was no package manager or none of it. And so I got involved in SIG apps. I spent a little time co-chairing SIG architecture along the way. But that's when I got involved in that kind of Kubernetes space. And uh, after doing that for a little while there, um, I, I was watching Helm along the way while I was at HP. And then when I uh, moved on to Samsung and there, uh, got involved in their cloud stuff, 
my boss over there said, Hey, you, you should get more involved in Helm. And Helm's the package manager for Kubernetes. And that's when I got involved in Helm and started doing stuff there. Now I was, you know, a lot doing lots of open source, piecing things together, building solutions along the way. But that's when I got really big into Helm. Um, that package manager, which was actually started by Matt Butcher, the other Matt we had talked about before, because he and I along the way have done lots of things. Like one of the other projects we did was Glide, which was a package manager for the Go programming language before Go modules and all of that. And so that was our second package manager that I got to work on with them together. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, uh, you know, getting early on in one of these projects gives you a lot of ability to help guide and have input. Um, you know, in those early days, as you're talking about, you know, some of the, the, the new technologies that are starting to evolve, um, you know, how did you kind of pick directions? Like, like as part of that team, as you, as you were starting to get more involved and start doing contributions, how would you come up with what to work on next? What, what piqued your interest? What things kind of like, oh, this is really interesting. I want to dive into this. So when I look at things, I don't just look at what's out there because everything is out there. I try to figure out what's going to be useful, um, useful to me or useful to lots of other people, you know, customers, friends, you know, if it's, um, a, you know, just something, you know, that kind of thing. I'm looking for who's it going to be useful to and why I want to be able to justify that. Right. And so when I was looking at the different container orchestration systems, I said, okay, there's a few useful ones. But on top of that usefulness, who's already got the mind share? Who's got kind of the marketing, the voice, right? Because it's more than just building something useful. Uh, people got to know about it. They've got to know how to use it. And so that's what kind of led me to Kubernetes. And when there were multiple package managers, that's what kind of led me to Helm. I could kind of see how it was being crafted to be useful and how there was that voice behind it that was telling people and they were hearing and wanted it. And so I look for those things when it comes to these larger projects. And, and that was a big thing for me along the way in picking those. So that led you to Rancher, um, eventually Sousa, which bought Rancher. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And, and, and now you work um, on Rancher at Sousa. Is that correct? Uh, sort of. It's sort of correct. Sure. So I left. Um, Samsung to go to Rancher before it was pulled in, but the you know uh, Rancher going into Sousa had already been announced, so I knew okay. I would what I was getting myself into, and uh, so I joined Rancher, and then it came into Sousa, and um, I, I originally came in to continue a lot of the open source contributions because Rancher wanted to help contribute more to open source. But then Shang Liang, the uh, CEO of Rancher, who's the president of ENI over at uh, Sousa of engineering and innovation at SUSE, uh, said, Hey, I've got ideas of things we want to R and D. And, and he started pulling me into some of the new things we wanted to create because as Rancher came in and it was kind of this known, uh, you know, Kubernetes cluster management system where you can manage lots of clusters and we, we've had iterations. Um, Rancher had worked on other things as well. We saw Rio, which is now Archive. We had K3S, which and Longhorn. Some other things came up alongside that have turned out to be really useful. And we had ideas on more of this. And they said, let's go do this. And so I got pulled into some of the new stuff we decided to start working on. And I think the first thing that he, he uh, hit me up on was Rancher Desktop, which isn't Rancher on your desktop. It's 
uh, local Kubernetes cluster on your desktop and it's container management on your desktop, all wrapped up as a desktop app that can run. We originally thought we're going to go after Windows and Mac, and now it's Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um, but it's a desktop app for Kubernetes and container management. And that's what I got pulled into after being there about a month and a half, just getting on board, doing my contributions. Let's go do something new. Well, and that's exciting though, right? I mean, coming from that tinker mentality, uh, it's often good to have the freedom and the creativity to go try new things and, you know, try and innovate. Um, and so that, you know, R&D type mentality is something that, uh, you know, is it's great when you're allowed to do it. A lot of companies end up forced to just kind of, you know, maintain and, you know, keep stable. So having that innovation is really a, a, a good opportunity. Yeah. And uh, at first, when he when, when we chatted about it, I walked away from that and went, oh, boy, uh, because <laughs> it had been more than 15 years since I'd worked on a desktop app. And oh, yeah. the space had changed so much. And at the time, it was Windows desktop. And now we're talking multiple environments. And so I had to go learn that whole tech stack. You know, I knew Kubernetes. I knew how to run it and on my desktop just through terminals and things like that and VMs. But how do I make it an easy-to-use app? And how do I even build a desktop app? So it was a lot of early tinkering and learning technologies and piecing them together. It's like somebody saying, go build a car, and you've never done one before. And you're like, okay, well, I know how engines work. You know, I know how you know, there's body panels over here. How do I fab body panels? You, you, you had to go learn all that stuff around desktop apps. And so there was a lot of onboarding and learning that early on and trying to piece together proof of concepts, learned what worked, what didn't, uh, until we got to where we are today, where we have, we're past a 1.0 and we've got multiple environments and an easy to use app. Now, do you find that uh, the Rancher desktop is mostly used for developers and those who are looking to have a local Kubernetes environment for their, uh, their own R&D or their own kind of development cycles? Yeah, and that's kind of what we figured it would be. Um, if you're, I, I like to break things down into different roles. Some people like personas, like roles. You've got things like a, a Kubernetes cluster operator who's dealing with your production environments and all, you know, QA and dev in these different environments. And quite often, they don't have a lot of need to run like, you know, Kubernetes locally, like it's in your production environment. Where they have a need is tools to help them manage those environments wherever they are, mm -hmm. right? Uh, servers, laying down the operating system, bringing up Kubernetes, or maybe interacting with what the service of public cloud has. Um, and that's really Rancher's sweet spot. And then there are people who are taking others' applications or taking applications and packaging them up so they run in Kubernetes. And they run as containers, right? And and you see lots of cases where it's not your own application you're doing that. If you take MySQL, Maria, Postgres, Mongo, any of these, and you've got to package it up to run it yourself, you're taking somebody else's code and and, and material and, and quite often having to go get it to run. And so you've got that role. And then you've got the role of the actual application developer who's writing their own code, and they want to just have it running Kubernetes. And they're developing locally. They want to, you know, have that inner loop or, you know, save, see how it works, go make more changes, save, compile, or maybe just refresh, see how it works. And so you've got these, that model there. They, they know it's going to be in Kubernetes or it's going to be in containers. So how do I test to make that work? And you kind of got those roles. And that other role is where we went after with Rancher Desktop. 
Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, you you mentioned, you know, that different use cases, and obviously, where where I work, we're all about the databases. We're all about the stateful yeah. applications, which classically has not been a sweet spot for containers or Kubernetes. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of work over the last few years to get towards that. And we've been working with the data on Kubernetes uh, community. Um, but that is a difficult space, often because the application development paradigm around microservices, around, um, you know, how apps are being built today, these cloud native apps, it doesn't always fit into what databases need to um, do in order to maintain uh, that, that, that state and maintain, uh, you know, consistency, which is a, it's been an interesting challenge. It, it really is. And for a lot of application developers, what they love is the fact that they can go grab a Helm chart and install a database, or they can go grab an operator and have it handle the database for them. And then they just work on this stateless business logic. And the hard part, state is somebody else's problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I and, and that 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 presents a challenge. Uh and I think you we've started to see many new companies start to crop up in the open source or open source compatible space, if you will, where, uh, you know, you're, you're building these cloud native databases that are built on um, heavy clustering to try and make it as seamless as possible. So, I mean, there's a lot of innovation around that space as well. Um, but from a Kubernetes perspective, one of the things that I've often, um, you know, I don't know if I would say fret or I, I, I've, I've thought about the number of different, um, you know, ways or a number of different packages, number of different uh, flavors of Kubernetes, depending on which cloud provider you're on, might be a little bit different than another cloud provider. Um, everybody has their own little ways of um, doing things. And that makes it uh, challenging. Now, it's great that from an open source perspective, people are able to adopt, but uh, it does make it a little more challenging to get consistency. And I know the CNCF is doing quite a bit about that. And I know you're on the technical oversight committee there. So what is the technical oversight committee? And uh, maybe tell us about some of the things happening over at the CNCF. So uh, I was recently elected to the technical oversight committee. Um, and so I have become quite vocal over there, um, yeah. mostly as a project maintainer. And I'm generally a vocal person. I'll tell you what I think, uh, uh, for better or worse. And the TOC kind of oversees the projects, but not in the sense of we're going to tell projects what to do or how to do things. We oversee e each uh, open source project that's in the, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF. And the CNCF is uh, underneath the Linux Foundation, right? It's a sub-foundation mm -hmm. of the Linux Foundation. And uh, each project is self-governing. And they don't all have the same governance. And the Technical Oversight Committee kind of oversees the landscape of projects that are actually joining it. The criteria for them to advance along the way from a sandbox to incubating to graduated, if projects need to be archived. Um, they'll evaluate new projects coming in to see, is this a good project fit? They'll give guidance to projects. We've now created... Uh, technical advisory groups, tags that are working on papers and guidance to try to help projects and people kind of navigate the space. 
Um, while each project is self-governing, we're there to try to help them along, give them guidance and set targets for them, right? As they're going along, what kind of things would we like to see out of them that they don't do today? And maybe set some of those as goals and not just for individual projects, for all the projects collectively to think about. But at the same time, we've set up an environment where we're not trying to make uh a king out of one project or another. We like we we are happy to have two projects in the CNCF that directly compete with each other. Uh, let the market decide in those kinds of things. We're, we very much act as a technical facilitator. Mm, okay, okay, and um, that enables you to kind of see some of the things that might be coming down the pipeline. Right. If you're looking at different projects, maybe, you know, what you want to include or what what might be in, interesting to get involved with CNCF. I'm curious, what new things do you see coming in the future here um, in this space that kind of excites you or gets you really curious? I, I would say it's it's a very hard thing that we're getting into, but it's interesting. And that's edge. You know, you so often you think of yeah. cloud computing, you think of public clouds, or even if you go back to OpenStack, people tried to set up public clouds with it. There are some that are like that, but many of them ran as their own private clouds or their own private data centers with, with public cloud-like features. And that's even where Kubernetes had a lot of its strong spot. But now we're seeing it start to get smaller and smaller and more people talking about edge and proposing projects who either directly say edge, like there's a, a CNCF project called Cube Edge, right? Or there's K3S, which is a uh, Kubernetes sandbox project that came out of Rancher. And um, it's a kind of a smaller pared down distribution of Kubernetes uh, that uses less resources. And you see people talking about using that in more edge scenarios as you get away from that nice connectivity. Like K3S offers uh, all the images it needs in just one pack you can download for its air-gapped images because it knows there's these places with poor connectivity or no connectivity, you may you may need it. And you see more things. There's Cube Edge in the CNCF um, that are directly saying, hey, this is Edge. And so I see that as a big thing. And so those same ideas you took to the large public clouds and data centers, you now see people trying to take to these really small environments so you can manage your workloads and run the same things in the same way. Yeah. And I think that's something that as, as we've, we've advanced in uh, the technology space, um, there's a insatiable demand for more data and more real-time access to it, which has driven a lot of that desire to keep things out there. So think about how many devices, uh, IOT devices are out there. I mean, you know, heck my, you know, daughter's toothbrush reports back to a web app that tells her if she brushed her teeth, you know, enough, right. You know, and like, you know, you, you think like what, um, but we have customers, for instance, in the retail space who they want uh, systems that are at individual retail locations that have redundancy and everything built in to do all kinds of processing locally. And then they sync up, they push data um, with, you know, the master servers back in, you know, whatever uh, data center they have. And I think that's a very um, classic model when you talk about, you know, distributed systems to have different locations, but now we've taken it to the nth degree because everyone's phone has, you know, so much data on it. Everyone's, you know, devices, my refrigerator, my laundry, you know, um, all these different things have little bits of data. And 
being able to access them, do processing on them is often something people want. And um, the ability to build those systems in a way that are resilient and will uh, handle outages is uh, critically important. So I, I do definitely see uh, a lot of that um, desire for more information on the edge, more redundancy, but it does bring up kind of an interesting problem, which is instead of dealing with uh, managing and maintaining just a few systems, now you've got thousands or you know even tens of thousands. Yeah. And so your management problem has grown and the kinds of software you're writing have grown. I'm always amazed that uh, when I when I have to deal with stores, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, any of these stores, right? And they've got all these locations, you know, thousands of locations. And I can go to their website and I can find out what's in stock at a particular store because mm -hmm. they've got the inventory management. Um, they obviously have it in that store. And they've got it synced up so that way their websites and, and systems can access that inventory and use it elsewhere. And, you know, that's a distributed data problem. And, and how do you deal with it? And of course, then there's things like uh, beacons, right? If you remember, I remember I was shocked when that technology came out and people put beacons through their stores so they could track as people walked through their aisles. And if you collect a lot of data there, you don't want to send that everywhere because then you're dealing with data egress and ingress and extra costs of bandwidth. Um, there's a lot of data to move around. And so there was a concept I learned a while ago called data gravity. And you know, you want to process where your data is at and where your data is at kind of pulls in your compute. And so being able to do more of that at your edge location so you can work stuff out without having to move it is very useful. I mean, that's been Apple's bread and butter with the iPhone, right? They put these neural engines and chips in there so they can do more of the processing locally instead of sending it back to um, their data centers. Um, and they, they say, you know, they do it in the name of privacy quite often, but it also has to do with things like bandwidth and, and moving data around and, and tracking all of that. And so um, it's interesting to see this becomes a, a large distributed systems problem, but it does mean there's a call for more um, management and computing power out at those edge locations. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is a it is a shift. Um, and it is something that we have to get used to. I think it's um, I, I think it presents a lot of challenges. You know, you mentioned privacy. That's one that we often don't. Well, we think a lot about, but I, I don't think we realize how much data is, is out there and how many people have it. Right. And uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, walking through stores and being able to track. Uh, I mean, there's there's quite a few different data points, and it, it's it's hard to sometimes secure all the different systems, let alone troubleshoot them. So I think that there's a lot of uh, uh, effort that is coming out to to try and manage and uh, secure uh, the the herd, if you will, of uh, systems. And I think that that's one of the interesting things working for SUSE. We've got. A group that does edge now, right? It's one of the, the things we go after and you can go read it in our marketing material. It's one of our, our, uh, things we, we chase after. And, um, SUSA is a German company headquartered out of Germany. And so privacy and the EU laws on privacy and all this stuff has been, uh, since I joined, I didn't even realize it's all taken into very careful consideration along the way with what we do. And those conversations happen and we look at it because that's a natural part of that culture coming out of there. And so when, when 
Um, I think of edge now and I think of those things, privacy comes to mind because so many of my great coworkers have kind of reminded me over time about those angles and the different laws and the implications and how that applies to situations because they've just so long thought about it. Yeah. And I think being the global um, world that we are and how we all do business that transcends borders, you're, you're often restricted to what the, the laws and privacy of uh, you know some of the more strict countries or regions are uh, because you know you are crossing boundaries and uh, the EU has done uh, a good job with GDPR and uh, you know with some of the privacy laws. I know the U.S. is starting to try and catch up with some of theirs, but it's more state by state. So uh, there there is quite a bit of uh, emphasis there to uh, keep people's data private. I mean. For the most part, I think people want their, their, their data kept private and secure. They want to be able to get what they need whenever they need it and make sure it's, uh, you know, always available. <laughs> uh, and I think if you hit all those three, people are happy. Um, yeah. so I, I think that those are important, uh, topics there. Uh, now you mentioned, uh, you know, what's, what's going on at, uh, SUSE. You know, I'm interested, you know, you mentioned some of the, the rancher desktop. Um, what are some of the other exciting things that uh, you might have been working on or uh, that the team has been putting out? Uh, one of the other ones is we have something called the base container images. So Slee is our Linux distro. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's known for being very, very secure, right? When a vulnerability comes out, we typically release the fix for it at about the same time the vulnerability is made available to the world, right? We're really on top of it. It's a, it's a highly secure uh, enterprise distribution. And um, when it comes to container images, though, uh, we've recently come out with the base container images. And they come in things like just a very minimal thing on the bottom, uh, where you just have that Linux distro with your base system library, so it's not a scratch container. You can get them with um, build or runtime tools like Node.js or the Go programming language, and there's a flavor of those. And what I find really interesting about these is um, they update, and you can get updates for them at the same cadence with things like CVEs and stuff like that you can regular SLE for. So if there's an update that comes out and we rebuild dependencies and and make a, you know, the latest patch set available with everything fixed, um, that becomes available to these base container images. And it's very easy to just replace the one underneath with now the secure one. And in this world where the secure supply chain and um, security vulnerabilities have become a really big deal, um, actually having those, those bottom base layers for my container images um, be built on something very, very secure uh, is really interesting to me. And so that's one of those things that we've been working on that I really like. I want to build more stuff on it and then constantly update that bottom image so that way everything is secure and we release updates quick. Well, and I mean, that's that's a good process because it makes it easier for administrators and end users. It helps you automate that process more. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an old school you know, uh, person and, and I'm guessing so are you. When, it, when, when I started, it was all command line. It was all by hand. It was, you know... It, you know, you might write some shell scripts to do it, but if you didn't write shell scripts to do it, it wasn't going to get done. Uh, so a, a lot of by hand things, which meant that you missed some things. And now we're in a, a process where people are looking for more automation, the easier way to do the mundane things. And 
security is so important, but you want to make it so it is easy for them to be secure. They don't have to jump through hoops. They don't have to potentially miss a step or keep something that's uh, vulnerable. And uh, quite frankly, there's a lot of people who are running technology they don't understand. So if things do have the ability to auto-update or keep things up to date, uh, it's better for everyone. Um, especially in the, the database space, what I've seen is uh, the majority of data leaks come from people who do silly things, right? They copy a database over, they leave it with no password, they use it for a test for five minutes or whatever to do some reporting, and they forget about it. You know, yeah. um, so a- anything we can do to secure the systems easier, I think, mm-hmm. is going to benefit everyone because we spent a lot of time and effort making technology more accessible for everyone. Yeah. And, and thinking of security gets me into another one of the things we're working on. It's a project called Cube Warden, um, and it's an admission controller for Kubernetes. But it's got mm. an interesting twist to it over um, some of the things like uh, uh, Gatekeeper and some of the stuff in the CNCF today. And that's you can write your policies in pretty much whatever language you want, including turning complete languages, and you can pilot to WebAssembly. And it uses oh. WebAssembly as the standard component that it runs. And so all of these languages, everybody jumping on board WebAssembly, which is kind of a really fascinating thing that a lot of it's being developed to run outside of the web and other infrastructure places, uh, is the, the key component there. And so anything that compiles to WebAssembly, you know, Python, I think you can even take PHP these days and compile it to WebAssembly, can be used to write your policies. Um, but it does allow you to write policies and things like uh, Rego and some of the existing ways or take those policies, turn them into WebAssembly and use those as well. And so it's a policy engine. And if you're using um, PSPs today and Kubernetes, which are going away and, or, or some of this other stuff, you can actually use this as your policy engine. And so if you need to write policies for Kubernetes and you're already a, a Go shop or a Rush shop, you can just use those same languages you use today. And that's very cool. Kubernetes policies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, Matt, WebAssembly is a big thing. So that's. Oh, yeah. And I think I, I've seen it really grow in popularity over the last few years. So, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, people are looking for, for new ways to do old, to solve old problems more efficiently <laughs> um, and uh, leverage the resources and uh, code that they already have. So I think WebAssembly does help with that. Uh, well, Matt, I wanted to thank you for coming out and chatting with me today, giving us a little bit about your background, telling us some of the cool things that are happening over at uh, SUSE. Um, you know, you know, as things progress, if there's something interesting you want to talk about, a new trend, anything, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, but uh, we do appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. All righty. Wow, what a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.